This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, where the questions get serious treatment, the hosts get put in their places, and the really good books get to have their say in the matter. Your hosts are Nathan Gilmore, Michael Farmer, and David Grubbs. Episode 61 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm your host today. I am an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. It took me a minute to remember uh, what building I'm sitting in right now. Uh, Also joining me today is uh, David Grubbs, who is a professor of English at uh, Central (laughs) Christian College in McPherson, Kansas. How's it going, Professor? Yeah, I'm good, and you're just not going to let that go, are you? No, I'd, I'd like to think of it as a running gag, really. <laughs> all right, all right, fair enough. And we also have with us uh, Nathan Gilmore, who's an assistant professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How's Appalachia, Nathan? Oh, I don't know. Are we in Appalachia? I thought we were in the Piedmont region. Tacoma's in Appalachia, but I guess Franklin Springs is a little further south, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely hilly country, but I wouldn't think of it as mountains. The foothills, well, they say, as they say. When you're standing in Kansas, it looks an awful lot like Appalachia <laughs> from here. Although, well, to be played. fair, Minnesota looks like the Rockies compared to Kansas, especially your part of Kansas. <laughs> uh, you yeah, passed the so. prairie and into the plains. Yeah. Yep. Well, we're going to be talking about Euripides today, uh, continuing our Greek playwright triptych trilogy. You know, I, I've been waking up in the middle of the night wondering if we've been using triptych wrong. I'm not really sure what that word means. <laughs> but it sounds like it means a group of three, doesn't it? Well, I mean, it, it refers to an artwork that has three panels, in, in my experience. David, is that a technical definition, or am I also doing a folk definition? No, a, trip, a triptych is a is a three part uh, piece of art. Uh, most frequently, it's it's hinged. It'll be like uh, three uh, three pieces of wood or whatever, each each with an image on it. Um, those images are considered to be related. It's it's often you know done in iconography. Um, very often, kind of pers- shrines for personal devotion in both uh, Eastern and Western traditions will take the form of a triptych because you can fold it up and then spread it out and it'll stand up. You can put it under your bed when you're not using it, right? Right. Well, so, no. So, so when <laughs> we call these series triptychs, we are not speaking literally, but as a metaphor, it works okay. Right. Yeah, it's a metaphor. Yeah. We're three. also saying that like those medieval artworks, our shows are kind of like science fair projects. That's right. And you can put them under your bed when you're not using them. <laughs> so just leave them up or on it. Or they stand alone. <laughs> Come on, guys. Like the cheese. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, before we continue our triptych, before we get to our middle panel, uh, do we have uh, any housekeeping items? I assume not, because our last episode went live about 35 minutes ago. Right, so no responses to that just yet. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll get right on that. <laughs> We're recording a little early this week because of uh, fall break here at Crown. I will not be getting up on our normal day to uh, to record. Right. So this is all my fault. So if you wrote in and, and you haven't uh, heard from us, it's because you haven't written in yet. 
Whoa. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, sit on that one for a little while. Time. Likewise, we can't really say if there's anything on the blog because it hasn't been written yet. <laughs> I feel like we're living on borrowed time here. When I go back in time, I've got to remember to write for the blog. <laughs> <laughs> there have been things written on the blog since since we last recorded, yes? A lectionary post, uh, yes. Lectionary post, and I think links, the links post was, yes. was tossed in there. And also, so. I, I posted a little inquiry to our readers about the ending of Mark, because I taught that in Sunday school this last Sunday, uh, and really got some pretty good discussion going on that. So actually, the blog's been fairly lively, considering... How little I've written. <laughs> and it goes without saying how little David and I have written. Yes, how, how less we've written. How less than little. Less than zero. <laughs> Ooh, negative numbers. Well, with that in with that in mind, let's go ahead and, and move into uh, talking about Euripides. Of the three playwrights, so- Sophocles, I always called him Socrates, Sophocles, Aeschylus, and Euripides. Euripides is almost certainly the least well-known. Um, what are our listeners missing out on, David? What What do we know about Euripides, and what contributions, if any, did he make to the Greek theater? Mm, well, I guess I'll start off with what we know about Euripides, which, um, which is what I know about Euripides. Um which isn't a whole heck of a lot, so I'm going to be representative of all human beings. Um, We don't know much, meaning I don't know much. But uh, fortunately, Project Gutenberg has a wonderful old book by Gilbert Murray entitled Euripides and His Age, which, uh, though uh, certainly outdated, nonetheless seems to be... uh, citing all of the things that I've found and kind of introductions to plays and stuff like that, that they weren't really citing where they got it up, got it from. Um, old Gilbert is actually, uh, giving sources. Um, it seems that we don't, uh, we don't know a whole lot about Euripides life simply because most of the information we have about him doesn't come from the stuff that's usually the source of biographies. Um, for instance, uh, the, a lot of a lot of the traditions about him actually come from comedies, um, from people uh, writing uh, playwrights uh, making fun of Euripides in plays, <laughs> and so um, some of the things that that are kind of have been said about Euripides over the years have are, have actually you know have 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 that as their origin. So think of him as the Al Gore of classical Athens. Yes, yes, the, 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 the man-bear-pig. Right, right. Um, I mean, what's the one thing everyone knows about Al Gore? That he claims to have in, invented the internet, right? What's yes. the source of that claim? A Saturday Night Live skit. Right. Well, you know, the same thing with I can see Russia from my house. Oh, absolutely, but. absolutely, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, in this case, it was Aristophanes, who's the one who seems to have picked on Euripides so much, um, though... Uh, Murray in his book points out that Aristophanes must have practically memorized the bulk of Euripides' plays in order to send him up so often. You know, he must have made such a study of him. Uh, oh, kinds of things that were said about Euripides. Well, he hates women. Um, we'll get, we'll and, get to that question. Right. Um, 
but that's something that Aristophanes very frequently makes fun of in his plays. Um, he's a loner. Um, there was a story that he would sit out in a cave and avoid other people and think high thoughts while writing his drama. Um, when did he live? Uh, these, these are all things I should point out that are also said about me, which may explain why I like Euripides. <laughs> I don't remember, David, I don't remember Aristophanes directly making fun of Euripides. I'm not saying he didn't. I'm just saying when I read Aristophanes, I don't remember that. Where does that happen? Uh, well, there's a play called um, The Women of Thesmophoria, in which uh, I'm quoting from Murray. The women, while alone at this private festival, agree to murder Euripides because by his penetrating study of female character on the stage, he has made life too difficult for them. <laughs> and the climax of the play is a solemn truce between Euripides and the women of Athens. I, I, I didn't read that one, obviously. Or I, wow. I, I hope I would remember that <laughs> plot point. Apparently, Frogs is similar. Um, there's a scene in which Euripides is defending his plays against attacks from Aeschylus. Um, I was just thinking and, somebody should remake yeah. that first play with Philip Roth and the Euripides role. <laughs> mm. Well, and apparently it's 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 from this play, uh, The Frogs, that another kind of story about Euripides, namely that the terrible women stem from terrible women in his own life. Um, that seems to be uh, something that, that Aristophanes alludes to in, the, in his play Frogs. That how modern? <laughs> yeah. So so it's so it's kind of like uh, you know the what is it? What was that? The George Lucas in Love. Joe, I have Joe no idea see? what you're talking about. Yeah, uh, any other grubs? <laughs> okay. I, I think I think it's Must called be a George Kansas Lucas thing. in Love. <laughs> No, it's not a Kansas thing. This is actually this is actually you know maybe eight ten years old. Um, it was a little little indie film that was making the circuit of the of the film festivals. But the basic gist of it is that George Lucas, young George Lucas, is at college trying to write this movie, and he keeps meeting. There's like this you know this kid with a with an inhaler who's like. You know, and and then the girl he has a crush on has like the the bagel buns on her ears. And anyway, all of these Star Wars characters, he he just keeps meeting at college. But anyway, Aristophanes beat whoever wrote that movie to the punch by, you know, kind of suggesting that Euripides had the same situation going on. He just have, ha kept having terrible relationships and turning them into mythic villainesses. And you can see you can see why somebody would want to let the air out of Euripides' tires, right? Because even compared to Aeschylus and Sophocles, he is an unpleasant, unpleasant writer. Well, it's not a fun experience. <laughs> Definitely. Um, I mean, even Aristotle uh, conceded that indeed his plays were rather tragic. <laughs> <laughs> we, we know with a few exceptions, we're not going to talk about them, but Euripides actually has three or four plays, uh, and I, I, um, I believe one of them is called Iphigenia and Taurus, I think, I think that's the one, there's two Iphigenia mm -hmm. plays, mm -hmm. that have almost happy endings. So mm. out of our three tragedians, he seems to be the one who maybe isn't as completely committed to tragedy. Now, if I'm wrong about that, I have not read those plays in many years. <laughs> but as I recall, he has three or four, and I think they're called romances that are, that are not, that, that are not wholly tragic. Mm, fun. But yeah, I, I mean, as you say, his, his reputation is being 
the darkest of the three for reasons that should become yeah. clear in a few minutes. Mr. Yeah. Gloomy. He's also the youngest of the three because um, the the other tradition about them is, well, they, they didn't have you know a great calendar, uh, and so they they they. Uh, the three great tragedians had their their birth dates or their their when they lived kind of slung around the Battle of Salamis in 480 BC. Um, and the story was that Aeschylus actually fought in the battle. Sophocles was in the boy choir um, celebrating the victory, and Euripides was born on that day. <laughs> well, that's that that sounds that sounds probable. <laughs> well. Even 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 if it's even if that particular story is improbable, um, the relative relationship between the two in terms of in terms of their age, where they follow each other. I mean, yeah, that's true. Yeah, he's the, he's definitely you know, August. He's he he's the new kid. Um, so I think we actually anyway. divvied these three guys up according to our own ages, didn't we? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not not in terms of uh, Nathan being thirty years older than me. Yeah, uh, uh, too late, farmer. Too late. I didn't mean so that. You, you, you being born during the Battle of Salamis. And I was right. In the well, no, during the Battle of Salami. Oh. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> A little different. Like I'm being too silly today. Uh, let's um, let's move into actually discussing Euripides instead of just making jokes about him. Yeah. Well, c- contributions. Do you guys want to toss out the contributions? Because um, when I was digging around, the, all the biographical stuff that I found basically talked about: Did these things actually happen in his life? Where did we get these stories from? Um, is he the Deus Ex Machina guy, or was that in much use before him? Uh, he is certainly the most notable person from that era to use it, and we'll right. talk about the Deus Ex Machina in a few minutes. Okay. Yeah, others might use it. He wears it out. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> it's the he is the George Lucas of his time. <laughs> That's true. All right. Uh, he also, sorry. I believe, has more plays surviving than any the than the other two. I, I forget how many he has, but Aeschylus has what six or seven. Mm. Sophocles has so, yeah. Sophocles has less than twenty. I believe Euripides has more than twenty. Yeah. Surviving, and so you know there are varying quality. Some the the two we're talking about today in particular, and then a couple others are very very powerful. Some are pretty boring. One at least one I think is highly overrated. The the Bacchae, Bacchae, however you pronounce it, the worshippers <laughs> of Bacchus, and the sequel of it to Tobacchi. Today we're going to discuss two of his best-known plays, but the stories, I think, are somewhat less known than that of Oedipus or, or, or you know, maybe even Agamemnon or people like that. So, Nathan, what can you tell us about the figure of Hippolytus in Greek and Roman myth? What happens to him and what other writers have dealt with his story? Well, the uh, character Hippolytus uh, is a young man uh, who is the son of King Theseus, Uh the problem that he has is that he lives in a world where gods fight with each other and sometimes squish mortals like bugs in their fights. So in this case, Hippolytus is a sworn devotee of Artemis, the virgin goddess of the hunt. Uh, however, Aphrodite, because he's such a beautiful young man, uh, desires to sway him to her side. Uh, when he refuses, she becomes so furious that uh, she goes and strikes his young stepmother, 
uh, older than uh, Hippolytus himself, but certainly much younger than Theseus. Uh, and she falls in love with her stepson. Now, when she, through the machinations of her nurse, and of course the meddling nurse is a figure that is familiar to many people who read tragedies, uh, when, a, when her nurse you know, makes attempts to get the two of them together, again, he refuses. Uh, his stepmother, Phaedra, becomes so despondent that she seeks to kill herself. Uh, but before she does, she goes to King Theseus and tells him that I am killing myself because of your son. Now, what what falls out is that Theseus makes the assumption that uh, she is killing herself because her son raped Phaedra, uh, which isn't true. He simply rejected her. And so, uh, to make the the play a much shorter thing, because this is a this is after all a podcast and not a dramatic reenactment. Uh, King Theseus actually goes to the gods, calls down a curse on his own son. Uh, the sea rises up because of the curse of Poseidon. His horse throws him. He breaks his neck. Uh, and at the end of the play, as I remember it, uh, although I didn't get to it on my reread, Michael, so you'll have to catch me if I'm fouling this up. Uh, they actually have a conversation at the end where Hippolytus says that he doesn't blame his father for doing this, uh, but then eventually dies from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, now the figure of Hippolytus, uh, honestly, Michael, I'm, I'm going to kick this back to you. Cause I, I didn't look up what other sources we have for this myth. Uh, Ovid in the Heroides has, oh, okay, okay, has okay. a letter from Phaedra to, to Hippolytus that, um, compared to Euripides anyway, makes Phaedra a figure of sympathy. I mean, she's, sure, she's sure. kind of simultaneously frightening and alluring and pathetic. Uh-huh. Uh, the, the way that all the women are in the Heroides. If you haven't read the Heroides, by the way, I don't like Ovid. I don't like. <laughs> I, I don't like the art of love. I don't like the Metamorphoses. But the Heroides is really just one of the great works of Roman literature. So if you if you if you have disliked Ovid, the Heroides may be the thing for you. But yeah, he he deals with Phaedra. I don't know. There must be other places, but that's the only one that's coming right. To and mind. see, I, I went looking for prior sources and didn't see any I recognized. So, you, I mean, I you know the Ovid version uh, again, which you know I've heard about from you, Michael, but I haven't read for myself. I mean, sounds like a fascinating take on it. Yeah, it's 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 very interesting. You know, that book is just like letters written by women in these myths to the men who have mistreated them, or in the case of Hippolytus, you know not giving her what she wants more than mistreating her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Ovid deals with it. Um, and, and again, that that's rather different than Euripides' treatment. There oh, is, sure. um, if, if, uh, if, if I've understood what I've read correctly, Euripides did write another Hippolytus play prior to this one. It, it just oh, hasn't okay. survived? Um, apparently, apparently it did not play well. A lot um, of okay. plays didn't because play well. because in it um, instead of um, well Ph- Phaedra Phaedra in this particular Hippolytus is she's kind of a she, she's kind of a I don't know a, almost a ghost really she she's withering away and doesn't want to say anything about this unrequited sinful love um, mm-hmm. but in the Euripides first version she's a brazen hussy who just goes out there and asks for it. And okay. The people, and the people hated it. <laughs> wow. 
They'll accept so, it from, uh, from Aphrodite, but not from Phaedra, huh? Well, uh, Artemis. Oh, excuse me. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. So anyway, the uh, apparently, you know, whatever, you know, whatever we think about her in this version, there was a version <laughs> that people didn't like, in which uh, she was much more forthright about um, her uh, her desires. Nathan, how would you describe Euripides' attitude toward Phaedra in the, in in the play, in the in the version we have extant? Well, like David said, I mean, she is definitely a victim of the plotting of the goddesses. Uh, and I mean, honestly, this is what, or at least part of what makes Euripides so appealing uh, to a modern reader is that the gods in Euripides uh, are really sort of amoral forces. Uh, in other words, you know, there's there's very little concern on their part for the fact that Phaedra and Hippolytus and really Theseus get squashed in the middle of all this. Uh, and I mean, really, her character, uh, she she conceives of her, herself as a victim. And unlike a lot of literary characters who conceive of themselves as victims, I pretty much agree with her. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's nobody who's not a victim in here. No mortal who's not a victim. Oh, sure, right. sure. I, I think she actually acquits herself pretty well because, you know, at, she in until, you know, the terrible handmade character weasels the truth out of her um by claiming she can cure it um she she's she's basically just going to starve herself to death and never act on this desire mm -hmm. um you know we we can you know we can falter for it but the play has already said that you know it isn't her fault that this desire is there you know, oh sure she sure she didn't put it there but she's determined not to act on it and in fact is you know basically you know, wasting away in that determination. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I I, th I think she ends up looking pretty good, with the exception of that, um, with the exception of the of the tablet that blames Hippolytus. Right. <laughs> you can see why Ovid liked this story so much, since it's all about innocent, basically good people getting squashed by the gods for no good reason. Right. Yeah. Right. And especially by Randy gods. Mm. Well, the uh, the play is odd for Greek theater, David, because it opens not with any human scene or with the chorus that opens a lot of the other Greek tragedies, but instead it opens with the figure of Aphrodite. What is significant mm -hmm. about that choice, and, and how does Euripides use the gods in his other plays? Well, I mean, we've already used the image of, of people getting squashed like bugs, and honestly, the opening monologue from Aphrodite, goddess of love... Um, employ irony flares here. Um, <laughs> it, it is it just just enhances that she's she opens up by by announcing and like I, I don't know it's it's like the first twenty lines that she personally is incredibly peeved with Hippolytus because he doesn't give her um, proper devotion proper proper veneration. Um, uh, she says there's something in gods that just demands veneration from humans, and if they don't get it, it, it peeves them. Mm -hmm. um, he's uh, he's uh, Hippolytus is, I guess, like his Amazon mother, um, a devotee of Artemis, um, and is dedicated to lifelong celibacy. He runs with the hunters, as does as does Artemis. That's what he's about. Um, 
and as a result, uh, doesn't have much regard from Aphrodite. As, as he says early on in the play, he, he regards her from afar. <laughs> um, and so she determines that she is going to destroy him for this affront. And she, uh, she says that the, the, her means of doing this is that she's going to plant this love in Phaedra, which is going to eat Phaedra up uh, from the inside, and through that, uh, through that, destroy Hippolytus. And uh, for for me, probably the most telling line is is when the goddess of love, who's supposed to be the one who plants love in human hearts, and is the patron of those people who are in love, she plants love in the heart of Phaedra and says that she ha- she doesn't have such a high regard for Phaedra's suffering that she won't squash her like a bug in order to punish Hippolytus. Right. And, you know, that, that I think just, that just sums up the, the gods in Euripides right there. That's, that's divine behavior. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that kind of, <laughs> um, I, I don't know, very, very petty, very petty yet, yet ultimately, um, vindictive, uh, behavior that humans are utterly at the mercy of. Which, if you've ever been a teenager in love, probably rings true, right? Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> I mean... Okay, I can concede that. He's using the gods as this metaphor. I mean, maybe he wouldn't have seen it as a metaphor, but obviously the the all the nasty stuff about Aphrodite is just a metaphor for how love hits you upside the head. Or he's read his mythology. Aphrodite does not look good in the mythology. She is every bit as petty as this in, in you know, just about every story about her. Well, yeah, but my, my point is all those stories come from, from from that same experience, right? I mean, a- Aphrodite as a character in Euripides or anywhere else represents love's kind of cruelty and etc. Right. Well... In, in the in the same way that it strikes me as surprising the first time I read Ares, the war god, being stricken down in Homer until I realize that he's an allegory for a war in which sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah, the the allegorical interpretation of the gods was something that was, you know, that that was popular, you know. Oh, sure, sure. But... Aphrodite love usually ends up coming out looking better when you listen when you when you read you know the later you know in, in Greek intellectuals um, well, Pla- Pla- Plato is certainly fair, fairly kind to Aphrodite in the in the Phaedrus right he's afraid that Lysias's speech has offended her and he wants to make sure that she but I mean even even his fear of offending her suggested <laughs> that that she's not not a nice person. Right. Yes. Now I'm I'm rusty on this, Michael. I mean, is that in praise of Aphrodite or in praise of Eros? Because I He just says love, I, I believe. Okay, in, fair, in the enough, translation fair enough, fair enough. So you could go All right. Okay. When I when I asked that question on my quiz in class, I, I accepted both Aphrodite and Eros. Alright. <laughs> fair enough. Mm-hmm. Same, you know, but similar anyway, right? Eros, Eros is Aphrodite's son, right? And he works for her. Right, yeah. right. You, you can elide the two. 
Well, thank you, David. Um, the, the gods actually show up pretty frequently in, in Euripides, and I'm, I'm thinking in particular of my favorite Euripides, which of course we're not talking about today, uh, Heracles, where the, the god, I think it's just the personified god Madness, shows up and he's kind of a mustache twirling villain to use our <laughs> to use our terminology from last week. So Euripides is fairly well they don't show up in every play, but the the gods show up in 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 form on stage much more often than they would in Aeschylus or Sophocles. Right. Or really anybody else. Well we can't really go to our normal ancient sources for interpretation of Hippolytus or really any other Euripidean play because Aristotle doesn't really talk about it much at all and when he does it's in rather negative terms so Nathan I need you to do my interpretation for me for what does Hippolytus suffer and should we feel fear and pity for him well actually I I would go precisely to an ancient source uh, but one that never as far as I know mentions Euripides by name and that is Plato uh, when you look at his criticisms of tragedy in the Republic, uh, these tragedies seem to be pointed precisely at tragedies like Hippolytus. Uh, when he says that in our good city, we cannot have gods who are capricious, gods who wreak vengeance on human beings for no reason, who actually seek to do genuine harm rather than punishment for the, for the sake of discipline. Uh, he is pretty much describing the gods of Euripides. So for Plato, at least, the idea that we've got this genre of literature that portrays the gods in this awful, awful way uh, is something that simply can't be in the soul of the good person and can't be in the education of the good city. Now, if you jump forward, you know, centuries and centuries, uh, to Alistair McIntyre, who I mentioned last time, and he's... In a lot of ways, McIntyre is my go-to guy when I start thinking about classical Greek culture as a culture. Uh, individual texts, certainly there are other sources I'd go to first, but as far as thinking about the big picture, he's my guy. Uh, he says that you know Euripides marks a realistic turn uh, in Greek mythology, which sounds a little bit odd. Uh, but if you think about it this way... Uh, the world that the Greeks inhabit uh, is one in which life can be short, it can be nasty, it can be brutal. Uh, this is a life where if you order your life around one force of nature, another force of nature is liable to come along and wipe you out. Uh, in other words, one of the philosophers, you know, largely Plato and Aristotle, but also to some extent the Stoics, uh, come along and try to temper the Greek tragic view of life, uh, what they are tempering is a very surface-level interpretation of reality. All right, When Plato is so concerned about saying, yes, the world of contingency does in fact change and it can indeed be destructive and you know uh, we can indeed say bad things about it, but the true reality is unified and static and entirely good, uh, that is decidedly a reaction against a tragic worldview in general, but certainly a Euripidean worldview in particular. Uh, so, I mean, as far as why Hippolytus suffers, uh, this is where it gets interesting, because uh, within the text itself, as David so nicely put it, uh, he suffers because there is an irritated goddess, uh, and we can read that as a 
character who is human only more so, or we can read it as an allegory for the force of erotic attraction. Either way, uh, he's going to be crushed by it, and he has no say in it. He didn't bring it on himself. It is simply the capricious nature of reality. When Aristotle gets a hold of the genre of tragedy, one of the things that he is sure to do is to say that there must be some hamartia, which we talked about last time, that brings about the downfall of the central character. So what Aristotle does is, you know, he takes a genre which, at least in Euripides' case, can be a genre that creates an entirely arbitrary and an entirely destructive reality, and he introduces a moral order to it. Uh, so, you know, this is one of those things that uh, I think comes around again in a very interesting manner in 20th century drama. Uh, and I, I, I know I'm far afield here, Michael, but I'll only talk for a minute about it. Uh, but if you look at something like Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman, you get the same sort of ambiguity about what's happening to the main character, right? You know, is he simply crushed by the conflicting obligations of the commercial system and the family that he's raised? Or is it that his marital infidelity is the moral flaw which crushes him? Or can we think of that moral infidelity as something that inevitably comes with getting older but being a traveling salesman, and therefore it's more Euripidean? So... One of the things I like to do when I teach uh, an intro to literature survey, which I did last fall, uh, is to read Greek drama right alongside something like Arthur Miller and say, you know, look at how literature after, you know, this Christian interlude where we've got plays like Hamlet and Othello uh, sort of comes around again to this idea of unstoppable superhuman forces that crush human beings. Now, is there any degree to which we could say that Hippolytus does have a tragic flaw in that it is his non-moderate celibacy? And his hatred of women? Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, I mean, when you know when he is approached about, you know, Phaedra's affections for him, I mean, he does go off on one of the great... <laughs> what now? <laughs> That's that is his reaction. Ew. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> he does go off on one of the great woman-hating speeches in literature. Uh, I think that certainly, from a modern standpoint, we can say that that is a moral flaw on his part. Again, you know, it is disputable whether Athenians would have considered that a moral flaw. After all, it seems to be one of the things that drives uh, Aristophanes' comedies in certain points. Uh, especially the Lysistrata. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I think that if we do want to get Aristotelian with it, we can say that his hatred of women and his resistance to marriage could be that thing which drives him towards his demise. Just his, just his failure to live inside that golden mean that was so important for the Greeks, right? <laughs> well, and I mean, Michael, you know that I always resist Aristotle when I'm talking about Greek tragedy because I think he is cheating a bit. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, if, if you want to give it an Aristotelian reading, then yeah, I mean, that's precisely where to look. Krebs, do you have anything to add? Though, though what, though what actually happens, I mean, I mean, she leaves a note. She says, this is totally Hippolytus' fault. She kills herself. Right. Um, does she do that precisely because of his outburst? 
because I don't think she ever looked for any relief from him. You know, the whole thing when the handmaid drags him in, that, that, that was completely unexpected by her, and she doesn't want that. He doesn't want it either. Yeah, that's true. Um, that's true enough. But, I, I you know, I, I, I've if there's any, you know, if there's any tragic flaw that, that I see, it's, it's early on when that, um, that huntsman who, who accompanies into, into town at the very beginning says, um, so the gods, um, you're supposed to give them all devotion. That one over there, you know, Aphrodite, she's going to be, she, she's going to be peeved with you, you know, if, if you don't give her her due and Hippolytus is like, whatever, man, <laughs> it's me and Artemis all the way, you know, and and that's you know, if 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 anything seems to be pointed out within the human context of the play, as a, as his flaw, it's it's that it's that little bit with the huntsman who's like, dude, you 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 better you, you better uh, pray to Artemis too. You better give her some offerings. You better give her some love. Yeah. That's and, 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 and I'll just say again, I tend to side with Plato against Aristotle here. Euripides just needs some better gods. Yeah. <laughs> I no, think I'm Euripides not. calls him like he sees him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, no, um, let's, let's move on to the Medea. And Grubbs, now it's your turn to explain. Who is she and what happens to her in Greco-Roman mythology? Um, Medea is the, uh, the daughter of, uh, uh, am I pronouncing this right? King Aetes of, uh, Colchis? Yes. Anyway, um, to me, she was always the, uh, the girl who helped out Jason in his Argonauts adventure. Um, mm-hmm. you know, Jason, uh, the... Uh, hero, uh, Greek hero comes from Iolcus is, is given this, uh, uh, this mission to, to go find the golden fleece and in some far off land. And he, he finds it, um, only to, only to, uh, discover that someone else already has it. So he has to take it from them. Um, Medea, who is the daughter of the king of the island where the, where the golden fleece is, she, she falls in love with Jason, um, and, uh, through her through her her magical art, which seems to also consist mainly of poisons, um, manages to uh, to to help him get away. So she goes with him. Um, that their next stop, they get back to uh, Jason's home city, where his I believe it's his uncle Peleus is still uh, still in charge, and Medea thinks. Um, well, Jason totally needs to be in charge. So she snookers Peleus's daughters into killing their own father, um, basically by persuading them that if they do so, she can she can bring Peleus back young and in restored youth. He's he's getting to be an old feeble man, and his daughters are feel sorry for him. So so Medea persuades the daughters that that he can give their father youth if they kill him and chop him up. Um, that doesn't work out. Uh, as a result, however, um, the people of the city do not welcome Jason as their new as their new and rightful king, but instead, um, rightly, run him and his terrifying wife off. Um, they end up in Corinth, and that's where uh, the scene opens in Medea. 
Jason and Medea, and now their their two children, their two uh, two sons are in uh, in Corinth, and the king of Corinth, who regards Medea as um, a concubine, a morganatic union. Um, she's a foreigner. She's a barbarian. She's not. She's not Greek culturally or ethnically, um, and therefore Jason's uh, Jason's union with her is not not something that uh, that he respects, and so he he suggests a union between uh, Jason and his own daughter, which uh, Jason goes for that, and the rest of the play is the fallout of of that decision. It doesn't tell end the story well. To... No, it doesn't end well. It ends badly. It's Euripides, man. But yeah. it doesn't end badly in the sources either. Um, do, do I need to go through the play? Um, I guess so. How it, how it, uh, Medea, Medea takes it badly. And begins cursing everyone loudly, publicly calling down the wrath of the gods on them, things like that. And when a, um, when a noted witch who has already killed her own family and um, sown such discord as she did in the last city they stopped off in, uh, the king of Corinth is, I think, uh, rightly suspicious of her um, cursing in the public <laughs> cursing in public in his own town. And so he's going to exile her and her sons. Um. She pleads for mercy. He has none, uh, but gives her gives her a day. gives gives her a day to arrange her her affairs. Bad mistake. Bad mistake. Never give a witch an inch. <laughs> um, because the entire time she's been plotting the death of the princess, uh, she plots the death of the king. Um, initially, she's going to kill the princess and uh, Jason in bed with a dagger, but then. She thinks, well, wait a minute. If I stab them both, I'll get caught, and then they'll laugh at me when they execute me. I can't abide that. And so she comes up with something even worse. Um, she ends up poisoning the princess and uh, the, the, the king as well when he tries to rescue the princess from the poison. It's not a poison you ingest. It's actually a poison that comes through contact of the skin. and she Like drapes poison from uh, Hamlet. Yes, or um, or like the blood of the centaur that uh, that 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 last um, mistress of Hercules anoints his cloak with, so that when he wraps himself in it, it burns him. Um, so the princess princess dies, king dies, and then Medea thinks. Now, now I need to kill the children because that will be for Jason the worst thing ever. Um, uh, and then the chorus, which this this is actually kind of a funny scene. Medea is announcing her intention. Well, funny, darkly funny to me anyway. She's announcing her intention to kill her children. At which point the chorus hops in, which up to this point I didn't realize the chorus was suppo- was supposed to be like physically in the scene with her. I mean, they're they're always standing there, you know, but they start. They're like, "No, Medea, don't do that." And I'm like, "What? The chorus is trying to dissuade her now?" And and you know, they're like, "Think about it. They're 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 your children." And she's like, and and her response is, 
none of that matters as long as Jason hurts. That's really all I want. Mm-hmm. You know, this, and in 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 a lot of ways, at at that moment, I think she's very Aphrodite like. Yeah. The the people who I should be taking care of, who it's my job to take care of them, I don't care how much they suffer, so long as their suffering increases the suffering of the one I hate. So she kills her children. Um, Jason uh, hears about it, tries to intervene, at which point she shows up on the magical theater crane, um, hanging, you know, in this dragon, uh, dragon, uh, drawn chariot, um, holding the dead children and taunting Jason. Um, it's really quite horrible. And then the play ends. Mm -hmm. Well, from what I've gathered, there seems to be a debate in critical circles about the content of Medea with, with some groups saying that it's this sort of proto-feminist revenge text and others saying that Euripides, as we have mentioned, is a raging misogynist. Nathan, do both sides have a point there? Can you carve out an Aristotelian mean for us? Sure, sure. I, although, Michael, you're supposed to ask me an either-or and I was going to answer yes. Uh, but <laughs> 61 episodes, I think I know how you work. Yeah, well... <laughs> Uh, the answer to this is, is analogous to the way that we read uh, Chaucer's Wife of Both. Uh, you know, in our period, uh, when we are very, very interested in women as characters, in the psychology of women, in women as human beings, frankly, uh, characters like the Wife of Both and Medea can really be impressive characters, irrespective of what we can assume must have been the intent of their authors. Uh, So, to stick with Euripides, since that's what we're talking about here, uh, Medea is every anxiety that a patriarchal culture has about a powerful woman. Uh, She's a sorceress, she's a child killer, she is insanely jealous, and she is completely amoral when her jealousy gets a hold of her. Um, Now, when I taught this to my English majors last spring, uh, they clutched and clutched at one brief line in the play where she says, uh, I'm actually killing my children for their own good. Uh, although I tried to disabuse them of that quickly. Enough. Uh, <laughs> I said, really, if somebody said that on television, on CNN, would you buy that? Uh, but you know, the, the debate over the character really is a wonderful test case in hermeneutics. Uh, It really depends on the framework in which you are reading them. Uh, If the exertion of power is itself an ethical good, uh, you know, in a sort of Nietzschean or Foucaultian mold, uh, then you can hold up Medea as someone who exerts feminine power. Uh, That said, I mean, if power can be good or bad, and if, you know, a woman destroying lives with power is actually a bad thing rather than a good thing for women, uh, then, you know, I'm just saying that's a possibility, Grubbs. Uh, uh, Then Medea is, you know, precisely the monster that Euripides was writing. I will say this, that, you know, since so much of literature in the period between the Greeks and the moderns um, you know, is obsessed with, you know, the, the frightening woman character, whether it's Lady Macbeth, where it, whether it is, uh, the old hag from the wife of Both's tale, uh, you know, Euripides is certainly within that tradition. 
Uh, I think, though, that we are wise to walk carefully before we start proclaiming her a great heroic character. Um, because if we do, then we are idolizing certain things that are, at the very least, dangerous and, in my view, pretty monstrous. Mm. If you're going to praise her, you also have to praise Aphrodite in, in the yeah, politics, yeah. too, right? And I don't know anybody. And, and, and frankly, you have to praise Abner Snopes in Faulkner's short stories, sure. which mm. I'm ready to do. <laughs> I mean, right. the, the difference is he's a man, and so... Yeah, but he's also a a poor man, you know. So I mean, he is a marginalized class in a way that's at least analogous. Yeah, fair but enough. Mm-hmm. But but he's still a small-minded jerk. <laughs> Earhole. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Raging even. Grubs, we literary types love the Medea today. At least some of us do. But it was widely hated. When it, when, it, when, it, when it was first performed, what exactly did audience reject about this play? And how do Euripides' fans deal with those same elements today? And if you'd like, you can feel free to bring in Aristotle's general criticism of Euripides here, that his characters tend to change personalities very abruptly. Mm. Well, uh, I mean, well, there's that. Yeah. <laughs> um, which, I, I, I don't know. I think because I'm a... I'm a because I'm a modern reader, I'm always trying to kind of read subtext and undertones and things like that. So they didn't seem to change so abruptly to me. What I, what me I, I don't, yeah, it's, it seemed to me that I was seeing characters who are uh, taking different approaches in different scenes. I don't think Medea shifts back and forth. Uh, she's very, very canny and she knows how to be diplomatic. She knows how to, um, prepare a face to meet the faces that she meets in probably the darkest <laughs> way that I can think. Um, you know, I, yeah, I, I was, uh, my wife was not familiar with uh, Euripides Medea and I was, you know, just kind of reading through some of it last night, you know, over dinner, which that's a great dinner conversation. I hope that changes <laughs> but, when you have, when you're, when your child is born, David, I hope you'll stop reading Euripides at the dinner table. Yes, but uh, anyway, her her reaction was this: this is the most terrible person. <laughs> um, and my guess is that that probably that that the original audience felt something like that too, um, because uh, Aristotle actually that's that one of the things that he mentions when he's talking about tragedy is that tragedy is rightly about um, old you know disasters among you know legendary mythical families and it should have a a bad ending and he says that you know a lot of people complain about Euripides because of the bad endings but in that in this case Aristotle says he's actually doing it right because and and this this is actually kind of funny this is the the whole damning with faint praise thing Aristotle says even though he gets every point of execution wrong It, at the very least, we can say that his plays are very tragic. <laughs> right. So, you know, the the very, very dark, dark endings. Um, you know, and at the end, you know, the chorus comes out, and instead of, oh, I don't know, I'm thinking, I, I guess I'm thinking of Antigone. Um, the chorus at the end of Antigone is like, don't be prideful, and things like that. The chorus mm-hmm. at the end of... of 
you know, both Hippolytus and Medea is like, man, terrible things happen, and you just don't even expect them. <laughs> man. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's the, that, that seems to be the message of Euripides, right? Right. Ass yeah, happens. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah, the chorus is, dude, where did that come <laughs> from? <laughs> and, you know, I, I, apparently the original audiences were some reason <laughs> that along with the chorus you know it was in it was in stereo it was coming off the stage and out of the mouths of the audience um, that's, a qui- thing- that's a quiet ride home that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> you imagine seeing that with like your mother <laughs> you're, 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 you're 12 years old or whatever two little two little kids i'm imagining two little greek kids kind of sitting between mom and dad on the I don't know, in the wagon or whatever, as they ride back out to the farm, and little kids look at dad and they look at mom and they look at daddy. Do you love mommy a lot? <laughs> you know, it, you know. There's a, the, there, there's that. Um, Aristotle uh, com- complains though of uh, one particular uh, one particular thing that he hates is that characters showing up for no apparent reason. Um. <laughs> The uh, the character of oh, what's his name Aegeus I think is his yeah. name mm-hmm. uh, King of Athens just kind of wanders into the play. I mean Medea's just sitting there feeling sorry for herself, and Aegeus like Aegeus walks in and is like Hey Medea, long time no <laughs> see, cameo. And she's like <laughs> Yeah, and you know, and sh- and she's like Hey, um, will you give me a place to crash? And he's like Sure, come over to Athens. We'll totally hang out. And then he leaves. He you should know. be glad she didn't go to Athens. Uh, Who's to say she didn't? She did. <laughs> <laughs> if I remember correctly. Well, where, uh, do you, where do you think she was pointing that dragon chariot? I guess that's true. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, also, so, Aristotle. So, so I mean, that that is the equivalent. Of, but yeah, that's the equivalent of the uh, cowboy pointing the gun at the camera, right? And Medea is going to Athens now. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I guess. I guess that's you. what it is. Yeah. <laughs> I, and see, I, I think of uh, Chris Farley's appearance in Wayne's World. Gee, that's very convenient that someone just gave her a ticket to Athens. I wonder if that'll come back up. <laughs> Chekhov's uh, gun, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, but Aristotle found that offensive. Aegeus just kind of wandering in there, hello, and then he leaves, and he never comes back. You know, he's literally this this random guy. Um, that does have something to do with the plot, particularly since uh, one of the, the things that Medea is most anxious about um, as she's plotting her terrible deeds but hasn't yet done them is, where will I go after I've done this? right. Because there will be no safe place for me Florida. after <laughs> Florida. Where all the other criminals go after they commit crimes. Yeah. So, uh, and, and, but and then, and then he's like, hey, come to Athens. And after he's gone, she's like, sweet. Now everyone's <laughs> going to die. Yeah. Um, and Aristotle just thought, that's, that's just terrible. You should, you should solve your play from within your play. All the action in the play should come from within it. Every everything, 
you know, you shouldn't just suddenly throw in some kind of external motion in order to get things going inside the play. Well, this is the whole prohibition against the Deus Ex Machina, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, yeah, he that that offends him too. And apparently, Euripides <laughs> just loves him some gods on cranes. Oh yeah. I think mostly uh, Euripides just hates the gods. <laughs> and the easiest well, way to demonstrate that. <laughs> the easiest way to demonstrate that is to have them come in and twirl their mustaches. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, like Artemis at the end of Hippolytus. Oh, but but uh, we'll I'll talk about that later. <laughs> Nathan, one of the reasons we're talking about Medea here instead of the rather similar Heracles, which I prefer, is that you teach it in your world literature class alongside a later adaptation of the same myth by Seneca. How do those two versions compare? And am I right to think that Seneca's play is superior to Euripides's? Well, these two plays are a great test of what you value in literature. Uh, one of the things about the reception of Euripides' version is that uh, in the, roughly speaking, in the Romantic era, when all things Greek become inherently superior to all things Roman, uh, a body of criticism starts to rise up uh, that's really dominant for a few generations that says that Sen- Sen- <clears throat> excuse me, Seneca's versions of the Greek myths are derivative, uh, that they are lifeless, that they are just not nearly as good as the Greek originals. Now, Michael, I, I tend to agree with you uh, because unlike those critics who tended to value uh, energetic language, who tended to value exciting and jarring plots, who tended to value... Uh, surface, surface, surface. And one of the things about Euripides' Medea is, just as David said, we really can't talk about sudden changes in her soul because she doesn't really seem to have one. Uh, You know, she is all surface. Everything she says is to somebody, uh, whether it's to another character or whether it's to the chorus. Uh, She is always playing. Uh, Seneca's version, what makes it fascinating is that the chorus has shunned her. Uh, so she doesn't have anyone to speak to, so hmm. she ends up doing soliloquies, which is something that Euripides, you know, doesn't even imagine as something uh, Medea is capable of. Another thing about uh, Seneca's version is that she actually has a turning point in her own mania for revenge. She wants revenge, certainly from the very opening scene. Uh, she is calling down the gods in a se- in a sequence that. I have to think is the inspiration for the weird women in the beginning of uh, Shakespeare's Macbeth. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. But there is a moment in Seneca's drama itself where she suddenly comes to realize that what Jason values most is not his status within the city, but the lives of his children with Medea. And she actually makes the decision to forsake her own motherly affections in order to gain this much greater revenge. So, I mean, Medea has much more of an interiority in that play. She's a much more interesting character, I think, although the grand speeches and the flying dragon chariot are awful cool. Um, (laughs) And moreover, Jason himself is a far more ambiguous character in Seneca's version. He's uh, kind of a wuss. He is, but he also has, again, some sort of interiority, some sort of morality, right? In Euripides' version, uh, he basically shows up and says, Medea, why are you complaining? You should be thanking me for bringing you to Corinth. Now you don't have to live among the barbarians. You can live as a cast-off concubine 
in the slums of a Greek city, so at least you'll be closer to real culture. Um, which Aye. doesn't elicit a lot of sympathy. I'm going to guess even among the ancient, especially among English major women in 2011. Just trust me on that. <laughs> um, but <laughs> let me tell you, that class was a, a lively one. Uh, but in Seneca's version, you know, Jason really seems to want to stick with Medea, but he is terrified that they are going to end up living as exiles, uh, which, as we talked about last time, is worse than death. Uh, because of his refusal to marry the princess of Corinth. Uh, so in, in other words, Michael, I mean, I think that you and I share an instinct that the interiority of literary characters is something to be highly valued, uh, whereas because of the energy and the liveliness and the, frankly, the Hellenic character of Euripides' version... Uh, it has been elevated as the greater play for several generations. Yeah, I've, I've I've read a bunch of criticism from the 30s and 40s and 50s about Seneca, and all they can talk about is how inferior it is to the uh, to Euripides' version of Medea. Right, right. To put in a further plug for the Heroides, much of Seneca's play owes a, a good deal to both the Heroides and to the Metamorphoses, both to the right. media sections of those mm-hmm. books. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm. Well, we are very close to out of time here, um, so let's, uh, let's hurry up with our take-home question, as we call it. Uh, <laughs> Euripides, as I mentioned before, is probably the least well-known of the three classic Greek pr- playwrights, but that's not to say he's not important to Western literature, so in the, in the little bit of time we have remaining, let's go around the horn and talk about where we see Euripides' influence on Western culture and literature. And if you feel like it, give some reasons why our listeners ought to pick up Hippolytus or Medea or uh, Heracles. David, let's start with you. Um, I, I guess, I guess like a, a couple of things. Um, first, the the... We, we keep talking about the notions of gods and how Euripides mm-hmm. talks about gods. Um, I think w- one of the reasons why Medea is most terrifying to me is because she's a godly woman in, this, in the sense that she is like the gods of Euripides. She is like Aphrodite, um, completely implacable, um, completely uh, seemingly in control of the events, um, other characters, you know, she manipulates them the same way. Um, and I think, uh, you know, if, if, if I have to, if I have to connect some things, Plato in his, uh, in his critique of depictions of gods in this way, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of on his, I kind of on his side that if, if you see gods this way, this is what godliness looks like. Godliness looks like Medea. Um, if your gods are are these gods, if your gods are the gods of Greek mythology, the implacable, the petty, um, and even even Artemis doesn't come out very well at the end of Hippolytus. Uh, she basically descends in, in her cloud and says, "Don't worry, guys, I'll make everything all right because the next mortal that Artemis loves, I'll kill him. That'll totally make things even." The next mortal that Aphrodite loves. Yes, the, sorry. The, the next mortal that Aphrodite loves, Artemis says she's going to kill him. She's going to shoot him with her bow. And that, Artemis 
thinks is going to make everything square. And then she leaves and 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 leaves Theseus and Hippolytus to to deal with all of that human destruction. Um, because from the point of view of the gods, it was all about yeah, all about that. Anyway, um, and so that leads me to my second point, which is uh, I know I'm I'm kind of cribbing from cribbing a phrase from Paul, kind of out of context, but uh. When Paul says in, uh, oh, can't remember which book of Thessalonians, uh, don't grieve as those who have no hope. First Thessalonians. Um, okay, First Thessalonians. Uh, I think Euripides gives us a really great idea about what it is to have no hope um, in, that, in that pagan way. Um, presented, with, presented with his gods, that's how I feel at the end of his play. I feel like one who has no hope. If these are the ultimate forces in the universe that shape things, yikes! Nathan? So go read more. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, going along a similar thread to David's, I think that if you think of deconstruction as the exposure of the internal contradictions within a system, I think that long before Socrates gets executed for doing just that. Uh, Euripides is laying the groundwork for that enterprise. Uh, in other words, you know, if you have a plurality of gods, uh, none of whom like each other very much and who are willing to squash mortals like bugs, uh, then what you've got is basically an incoherent system, one that uh, doesn't really need to be destroyed because it comes apart by force of its own urges. Uh, so I think that you know, to be entirely anachronistic, uh, I think that Euripides and Plato sort of make up that deconstructive motion uh, through that 4th century B.C. Uh, and I think that, you know, when the, I, I guess 5th and 4th century B.C., pardon me, uh, and I think that when we arrive at something like Plato's later thought where you've got something approaching a rationalistic monotheism, which, of course, uh, Augustine grabs onto so readily, uh, I think it is entirely fair and, you know, um, it is our responsibility to note that the philosophers didn't get where they got out of nowhere. Uh, it was people like Euripides doing the negative work, the critical work, the deconstructive work, uh, that made space for systems like the monotheism of the rough monotheism of Plato, the unmoved mover of Aristotle, so on and so forth. Uh, so I think, you know, as far as reading these things as Christians, you know, uh, one of the excesses of the Romantic period, uh, and I'm thinking of, you know, poems like The World is Too Much With Us and so on and so forth, uh, is that there tends to be a very, very selective reading of the old pagan ways uh, that sort of makes it this life-affirming, happy, everyone dancing together, nobody tearing down maypoles, and of course I'm bringing Hawthorne into there a little bit, uh, sort of world to live in. Uh, I think that a look at Euripides reminds us that, yeah, there might have been those moments of happy dancing, maypole, candy-eating, lots <laughs> of sex, life going on, uh, but it was a world that was ready at any moment to blow up, and Euripides blows it up for us. Mm. Michael, where would you go with it? 
Well, when I read Euripides, I always find myself thinking of Herman Melville, who is, oh, possibly the only only uh, writer in history whose quarrel with the gods exceeds Euripides. So you read Moby Dick, or especially its follow-up novel, Pierre, and it's, it's hard not to think of Medea and Heracles. Just this completely mm. unjust world ruled by a capricious god who demands adoration that nobody could possibly give him mm-hmm. the difference of course is that herman the, the gods the god herman melville hates is the christian god <laughs> and at the same time he kind of loves him mm-hmm. so i i uh i can't help but think of melville every time i read every time i read euripides which may be why i like him more than a lot of people like him because i like melville mm-hmm. too i would also encourage our listeners to go read heracles which is Probably the most brutal and purely tragic play I've ever read in my life. It is, uh, it's really something. Well, that's it for today. Nathan, what are we talking about next week? We are going to finish out the trilogy triptych, or three-step, whatever else you want to call it, uh, (laughs) with an episode on Aeschylus, and we're going to focus mainly on the play Prometheus Bound. Cool. Well, until that time, you can visit us at christianhumanist.org. You can send us an email at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Until next week, this is Michael Farmer for Nathan Gilmore and David Grubb saying, let your sins be strong, but let your faith be stronger.